Zwift is an indoor cycling platform where you can connect with a global community of cyclists at any time. You can chat with people all over the world, share in group rides, get encouragement from total strangers right on, who quickly become your new riding buddies and train harder and faster with competition on a global scale. Check out Zwift for yourself at Zwift.com today. Bonjour, 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 and uh, welcome to the Zwift Cycling Central podcast. I'm Christophe Malen, I'm your host. Remember that you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to our podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash central, or by logging a ride with our friends at Zwift. Uh, joining me today is Dave McKenzie. Maka, how are you? I am very good. The sun is shining. The weather's warming up. Oh, I love Melbourne this time of the year. Yeah, you know it's going to rain later. That's oh, shush. Do you know, there's a saying in England that says, uh, uh, if it doesn't rain, if it's not raining, it's bad news, because that means it's going to rain. Oh, and it's, you can play oh, this to well, Melbourne. That's England, mate. That's England, all right? <laughs> this is Melbourne. We're okay. not like that. We've got cycling journalism royalty with us. It's Rupert Guinness. Hey, Rupert. Hey, Christoph. Thanks for having me. Uh, welcome, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have you. Uh, Maka, who writes two books in one year? Rupert does. Rupert Guinness does. <laughs> He's the only man. Can I just say straight off the bat, now, I may have said this once before. You may or may not be aware of this, Rupert. When I was a young kid, and you know I've been in the sport a long time, when I was a young kid growing up, there was one or two magazines floating around, right? Now, I had, I had a few heroes, a few people I aspired to be like, Phil Anderson, Greg LeMond. But then there was this bloke who had this, I thought at the time, gee, that's a, like a famous sort of a name. He was an Aussie and he wrote for this magazine called Winning Magazine. <laughs> and then I found out he was an Australian. I was like, wow, Rupert Guinness and what a name. So I used to read your articles and I thought, this guy is a legend. Did you know that? Did you know that? I used to to look up to you. I didn't know who you were, what you looked like. Uh, But you used to write these. You used to write for a fantastic magazine. It was the first glossy sort of magazine, wasn't it? Yeah, Winning Magazine was, um, I was going back to the mid-80s there, but Winning Magazine was in many ways kind of ahead of its time, mm. you know, because uh, the, the, the pictures were so great. A lot of them were Graham Watson photos and um, and the stories were sort of, they were, they were crafted and they described it. This is all pre, uh, you know, World Wide Web and yeah. everything like that. You know, the stories really took you out in this journey of, of like the cobbled classics and you felt like you were riding every bump. Uh, this is, you know, when I used to read the stories from John Wilcoxon. Yeah. You know, it almost sounds Shakespearean, the name John Wilcoxon, you know. But when you, when you said about my name, I well, remember... Well, I remember... your name was a Hollywood name. That's exactly. what I was trying to say, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we talked about you, you and I, at length uh, in a few chats we had. Uh, but the world of journalism has completely changed in your time. You used to be able to tell stories. Now it's probably harder or you have a different way to tell stories because people want results, results, results straight away on yeah. the course like Tour de France. Yeah, it's exactly, Christoph. I mean, it has changed a lot and, and you know, there, there, are, there are periods of this change or transition where uh, there have been, for me, there's been certain uh, times which has been hard, but then you have to realise you've got to reinvent yourself or otherwise the bus is going to go without you. And um, so instead of looking at that change as a, as a debilitating element, I think it's an exciting change, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot of new things you can do out there. And as you said, you know, the, the, uh, the followers of cycling, the aficionados, they know the results, they know the tactics. They, you know, it's a very intelligent um, audience base out there. Absolutely. And you cannot underestimate it. And, uh, and they're very much on top of everything that's happening. And uh, so you, as a journalist, has, have to come up with not gimmicks or new ways to cover it, but I think you have to provide something fresh and different. That edge of difference is a cliche, but it's really important as to what you can provide that can add 
add on to the knowledge that the aficionados are already building through all the uh, access to results and images uh, of the sport. And especially if we, and let's not concentrate on the race like the Tour de France, but that's the uh, the, 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 the Everest of the year uh, for everyone and in, including ourselves. But uh, with the time difference and you writing for a, a, a paper support, uh, that must have been even harder to convey those news on time to be published on the day. Yeah, I remember and not having 48 hours or 24 yeah. hours delay. I mean, the, 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 the real uh, worrying part is uh, even today, if you're, you, you can't think about you're writing for the paper now. You've got to think you're writing mm-hmm. for online and then the newspapers will publish um, whatever story has gone online. But as you said, in that time difference, particularly in, a, in an event like a, a Grand Tour, which is evolving, between the time that your story is uh, put to print and when it comes out, there's like up to you know twelve, maybe thirty six hours difference, and you only need a rider to slip over in the shower or something to happen, and the whole <laughs> yeah. context of your story is gone. So you really don't sleep that well at night because you just you say you really want to check that everyone's okay and nothing has happened overnight. Yeah. Uh, what is your deadline normally when you're uh, when you're in Europe for, well, for to for sending stuff back to Australia? Well, what I've done now is uh, I try and think of the immediate thing, like online first, just get a, get the story done. But uh, well, also now instead of the immediate result. Um, like uh, what's when I've covered the tour for Fairfax, and this has taken a bit of the editor and myself sort of getting it in sync in a way, learning how the best to do it. But we sort of think, you know, the best, the most immediate, say, news race report, allow the agencies to put that up on, you know, so that they'll put that up online. So I can try and get time to provide my first story as quick as possible with mm-hmm. a, just re- with reaction. And if it's not reaction, some quick analysis as to what's happened. And then that gives me a buffer of time to, to write something else which is a bit more deeper. And looking ahead, something a bit more, say, for example, if today is a Monday and Wednesday's stage is the first mountain stage, maybe something sort of looking ahead to, well, what's, how does today's stage impact the potential scenario for the first mountain stage? And you don't necessarily have to speak to the stage winner of that day. You can mm-hmm. just someone different and try and write around what's already happened and what we've already reported online. So you've got to try and balance it properly. It's a little, still a little bit of a juggling game, yeah. but that's what, the, that's what I say. It's either you can look at it negatively as a, a hindrance or you can embrace it as a challenge and that's how I'm uh, that's how I try to do it now and on top of it you wrote two books then this year <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah, well, and, yeah. one with a massive adventure we'll talk about the first one <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Overlander this is uh, the, the subtitle is one man's epic race to cross Australia uh, this is a crazy race uh, <laughs> how first of all before you started this race people around you uh, how crazy they thought you were at least even entering this race on paper it was going to be harder already yeah, it's uh, yeah. People thought I was crazy, mad, you know. Like, uh, and then uh, there's times where I thought I was too before, yeah. before I actually started. <laughs> I, I did think maybe uh, I've jumped the gun here. I'm entering into something that I haven't really. Uh, so it's a race from WS or from Fremantle. Yeah, yeah, from Fremantle to Sydney, Sydney five and a half thousand kilometres, and uh, but it goes through, you know, across the Nullarbor through. Yeah, Port it's Augusta. not direct. Well, they directed me worse. Yeah, because at least this way, the longest way, you've got the the diversity of the countryside. Particularly as you come off the Nullarbor. Yeah. You know, I don't like, I'm not sort of built for mountains. But you know what? I really enjoyed the mountains, you know, in in the Victorian Alps and the Kosciuszko National Park, even as hard as it was. But it was so beautiful. On this, I mean, obviously my background in the sport and my father raced, so I know a little bit about the history and Oppermans and Mockridges and, and these events were, and I shouldn't say that, well, they were real races, and I don't mean it's now, it's not a real race, oh. but back then it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, so, uh, that bubble just went, <laughs> just burst. I'm going back to my trailer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, did you, were you, 
well aware of that, and you should be, I'm sure you were as a reporter, but how much of that was in the back of your mind for years and years that, gee, one day I'd love to do something like what Opperman did or what those the original Overlanders did? Or did it only come into your mind in the last few years that, wow, I should do this? Probably the, the, the latter, to be, to be honest, yeah. Macca, because I think, um, you know, the, the basis of, of, of this book and this experience actually stemmed from the other book that I've brought in today. Uh, so the other book was the one that should have been published earlier, but okay. I was a bit delayed with that um, power of the pedal, the history of Australian cycling. But this one, Overlander, came from because a chapter in that other book was on the Overlander riders, you know, that genre of rider back in the late 1800s even. Yeah. Before. Is that what we call oh. the Odax? No, no, or is no, it different? It's a similar sort of thing, but it's... Yeah, Audax has a bit more structure around, not necessarily the ride, but there's, you know, with qualifying rides and okay. there's, a bit, there's probably more uh, official accountability for you qualifying for a specific ride, mm-hmm. you know. I think it's a whole measure of this whole genre of, of riding, even though Audax has been around for a long time. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, this was based off the, um, uh, just the, the idea of being solo, unsupported, looking after your own food and accommodation. So uh, going into this race, mm. uh, how much training have you done to start um, with? Well, because it's one of those things when you do something of this magnitude, which you've never done before, you've really got no idea what, what's going to work or not. There was, one, you can go from one extreme thinking, I've got to absolutely train my derriere off here mm-hmm. and uh, stack heaps and heaps of kilometres. Or the other tr- train of thought is, Hey, I've got five and a half thousand kilometres to get to fit, get fit. To start and just keep rolling forward in one direction. So uh, there's a balance in between, you know. And I, 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 you know, in all sincerity, I didn't absolutely flog myself in training. I did train hard, and I did a lot of work with um, in the gym as well to develop core strengths and everything. Which you know, spending so much time, the duration of days up to twelve or thirteen, fourteen hours in in the saddle, you've got to have strong core strengths to keep yourself sort of upright almost mm-hmm. basically so i did a lot of that and 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 a lot of my tra- and i was probably doing about four five hundred kilometers a week and then uh, but a lot of my training was at uh, early morning you know like three o'clock in the morning in the dark to try and get used to being in the sheer darkness and being a little bit uh, afraid of you know i used Everything. to go to centennial yeah. park in sydney which was really dark you know it's, it's the ambient light of the city's gone and i used to think okay what's happening here and my, my initial thought then was some crazy person would come out with it mm-hmm. You know, with meat cleaver, <laughs> what would I do? But that, that sense of thought or being comfortable with it is the same that you'd need in the nullarbor. Not that I'm saying there's crazy people yeah. with meat cleavers, but like a kangaroo coming out or if you mm-hmm. saw a dingo, you know, that panic moment, you know, learning not to panic. On the nullarbor, now I've got a question because we hear about the, the roaring 40s, mm-hmm. the prevailing winds that, you know, apparently come across from WA all the way across to Victoria, yeah. what, 3,500 kilometres or more. Was it a tailwind across the Nullarbor, and was it a good one? Yeah, look, I, I was wondering where those where, where this it was a myth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've always wondered. It is. Oh, look, I, I don't know where those winds were. They weren't certainly weren't behind me. I think. Oh no! <laughs> it was a cross headwind most of the way when I did it in two seventeen. Oh. I rode it this year, and there was a couple of days where there was some tailwinds uh, coming off the Nullarbor afterwards, but. Uh, certainly this whole thing of, oh, you're going the right time of year, mate, you know, these winds will push you across. Uh, it certainly Didn't happened. No. And in 2017 when I did that, uh, across the Nullarbor, it was raining most of the time. I was in a, in a, in a weather pattern that where it just seemed to rain. I thought, <laughs> here I am in the middle of a desert and it's raining when it should be hot and here it is, where's the tailwinds? There's a cross headwind. So uh, everything you expect, I guess it's part of the, the experience. Don't, what you expect you won't necessarily get. Absolutely. Yeah. What was the hardest part of that journey? for you um 
notwithstanding, obviously, the day learning with Mike Hall's yeah. death on March 31st, but taking that issue aside, probably the, the hardest part, um, and I'm glad I did it again the second time because I learnt so much from the first experience, but uh, the hardest part was uh, um, probably learning to, you know, learning to control myself, you know, not overthink things when things go wrong. Like simple things like a flat tyre or whatever. Okay, they sound simple when you're here in a city and you just mm-hmm. you know what to do. But when you're in the middle of the desert and it's, you know, 38 degrees, um, it wasn't raining all the time, but I forget what I said before. But, you know, you spend all day in the heat and you spend all day in the wind. You're alone and you've had another third flat tyre. You've only got so many tubes with you. Um, there's March flies biting at you when you're trying to change the tyre and you can actually lose your cool a bit. And I did in one of my Facebook videos that I was doing because I wanted to show an honest portrayal of the ups and downs of it. So that, that's sort of learning how to sort of keep calm, don't overthink things, think of the old cliche, think of the, uh, the solution, not the problem. You know, keep moving forward, not necessarily physically on your bike, which is a major thing, but also mentally. So the, men- the mental uh, strain on it was as hard as the physical strain, could you, yeah. would you say? Yeah, it's very much a mental experience as much as physical. You know, um, there's another night on the to Mundrabilla, you know, and I finished at night and it had been raining then and it was like every, you know, my knees were sore. It's like I thought, gosh, this is just, you know, there's, one, there's a point where I actually thought this is probably too much for me, you know, but you can't change things then at, at 10, 10 o'clock at night in the middle of the desert. Yeah, you can't ring the physio. Can't ring the where physio. were you at Mundrabilla? On the, any any physios in Mundrabilla? No, there, there was a combi van went past, though, and, and, and the couple in there offered me some water, and I said, no, I can't take it because it's against the rules to take outside support. So it's no support whatsoever. You have to no. do everything yourself. You you have have to do everything. Purchase. You're not allowed to have access to any... You have access to resources that everybody else... You know, so long as everybody else can get access to those So you resources. can stay in a hotel room, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. as long as everyone else can stay in that hotel. Hotel, yeah, exactly. They have the option yeah. to. Yeah, they, they have the option to. at yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the second time you did it, yeah. and you obviously made it to Sydney, mm-hmm. which would have been a, a massive satisfaction for yourself. Mm-hmm. Did you go the route that I guess Mike Hall and the, and the other riders took on that occasion? And did you pass the point where he tragically was was killed? Yeah, we did exactly the same route. Um, this year's this year's ride was unofficial because yep. they yep. cancelled. Um, uh, because of Mike's death and the impending inquiry, but um, we still followed the same route. Uh, the rules were a lot uh, because it was unofficial. The rules were a lot. There's a lot more grey in between the uh, the black and white of the rules. So there's a lot more flexibility, and and people sort of embraced it more as a people's ride. Some, I mean, obviously, some did race it. You know, to be honest, I didn't race it. Mm-hmm. I rode it, yeah. which I think you've, most people understand the difference. Because I really wanted to experience the meaning of the event. The, uh, the, oh, the sheer joy of getting a second opportunity to, to ride across Australia from people who supported me, from my wife to my family and friends, to to the chance of seeing just how beautiful uh, Australia is, albeit as harsh as the country is too. So, you know, the, and the people, a lot more people came out and uh, sort of came out. and So there was a lot more, you know, you, I, you, know, you took a drink or two and things like that and uh, mm-hmm. people, uh, yeah, there's just a lot more flexibility. So... Around around my question though, did you you pass a point? Oh yes, where, Mike, yeah, yeah, and I mean that's obviously it was Monaro Highway, mm. this side of Melbourne, side of Canberra, I think. Yeah, was it? You would have been pretty damn tired when you got to there. Yeah. What were the emotions like? It was interesting because I, I knew this. It's like you know this moment's coming. Yeah. So you're thinking, how are you going to react? You know, and and you've had the best part of uh, 
uh, well, by then you've you've, you've just over five thousand kilometres. So you've had the best part of five thousand kilometres in your legs and in your mind. You come into the point where this whole this everything stopped a year ago. So you, you come into this, mm-hmm. this to use the word Everest, this Everest, Everest moment in in the uh, event. And then um, I think I noticed that day because that day I left uh, Kuma in the morning. So you think it's almost like a, this is this is probably the biggest day of the ride apart from finishing this probably is the biggest day emotionally and then and uh that day i did get you know quite you know it was very emotional you know and uh, there was sections where i was you know because your emotions turn on on and off Mm. quickly you know and then i'd tears would come to my eyes when i think about it all and then um uh and then i stopped i saw a a dot tracker who these people were following us on the dot tracker todd bonnie his name is who's a local guy who's actually the person who's looking after the memorial Okay. You know, right. he, he maintains it and everything. Yep. And he uh, he actually came out and we had a good chat about stuff for about half an hour. So you can tell I wasn't racing, you know, it's like half mm-hmm. an hour chatting. But it was a great chat and, and that actually helped me sort of get my head around a bit because then from there to the actual thing, I was quite calm, interestingly enough. And I did stop there for half an hour yeah. and just had a, you know, I ate my lunch. Or was it blunt? Well, I ate something anyway. And then, uh, and then just sort of uh, had a chat to Mike. It was, you know, yeah. obviously not there, but in spirit. It was mm-hmm. quite uh, – it was, it was actually a nice moment. I actually quite enjoyed it, you know. I remember I put peeled a banana, you know, and as you do because it's biodegradable. I just remember I just chucked it over my shoulder. And as I, as I left, I thought, oh, God, I can't leave the banana skin there because because the meaning of the place, you know. <laughs> I remember I picked it up and when I rode on, didn't, you know, next about 50 metres later, then I chucked it. But uh, it, was a, it was a nice place as, for, as tragic – it's a circumstance that has made it such an important place, but it is a nice place to go to. So I'd recommend, you know, if people want to go past there, you know, um, you know, stop there if you feel like it. Don't feel it's not a place – It's not. don't feel that's a place that you shouldn't stop at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you feel like it, take it. And, uh, you know, appreciate um, what people like Mark, Mike had, had left in their legacy – and the you know the chances we get to ride bikes and the beauty of the sport. So on on that and and I, I guess on the Michael tragically what happened to him, I've spoken to people sort of since that and even during it. Someone like Dave Sanders, I guess, who was involved uh, back in the day. Dave has mm. done a lot of things. Um, the Westfield uh, Sydney to Melbourne or Melbourne to Sydney yep. run. He. He's against the way the Overlander race, if you like, is mm. run. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's all knee-jerk, isn't it? When someone is tragically killed, then you suddenly get the, the people who want to jump up and down and say, oh, I told you so, it yeah. should be. Do you have any thoughts on how the race should be run in the future in terms of safety aspects? Should there be a travelling uh, camper van behind each rider? Should, the, should riders be forced to stop when it gets dark or... Now that you've done it, you're involved in the first one, and then the second one you've done. What are your thoughts on it? Um, uh, well, firstly, you know, I, I totally understand and respect people's views on it. You know, the people who are, who are against it outright, and uh, it is such a sensitive thing. Um, the one thing about, and this is probably stating the obvious, and I'll get to the answer of your question, but the issue of, you know, there's, you know, there's tragically one death on the first IndyPac um, race. Uh, I don't believe that means it shouldn't be on. I mean, mm-hmm. as the old argument, it can happen anywhere. You've got to have yeah. a corner shop. And ironically, tragically ironically, in this year, you know, the first week I was on the Nullarbor of this year's ride and, and then I heard um, at Centennial Park, which is a kilometre away from at home, someone got killed that morning on their bike, you know, 
and I've, you know, I've used the case it can happen it can around, ha- the around Centennial and, Park, and yeah. it happened that first week when I was you know, on the IndyPak ride. Uh, so mm-hmm. I don't believe the length or circumstance of the race necessarily defines the, the, right, the reason for that race existing. Yeah. It's a bit like saying Tour de France shouldn't exist now because, and that's a supportive race. You've got doctors, cars. Fabio Cassatelli was tragically killed. You know, um, so I don't believe a tragic circumstance should define the future mm-hmm. of an event. But measures can be made or taken to learn from a circumstance and perhaps you know to have yeah. a, a safer situation. This year's ride before it got cancelled. It did have a lot more safety measures included. A lot of them was to do with uh, high vis. Yeah, I did. Reflected. I remember reading about that. Yeah, um, you know, having two rear red lights on instead of one. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I had two rear ones, and I put one on a red one on the back of my helmet, and uh, I had another jersey by a company called Metier, which you had, uh, albeit it was black, but actually had white. Uh, actual lights on the front okay. and red on the back, and people told me they could see me kilometres away. Okay. You know, people in the in the Nullarbor. You know, for example. So there are there are a lot of safety measures you can take because I think you can't. There are still people riding across Australia right now. Yeah, there are people you, know, you hear reports. People are out there saying there's people riding the route, just anyway, doing it for so the hell of it. You can't stop it. Yeah, yes, yeah. So um, I think the future of the event, notwithstanding what the findings of the inquiry that finished just recently into Mike Hall's death, you know, whether the event becomes official again or just continues as a people's ride like this year, I think it'll, uh, I think it'll stay as, as it was this year, sort of a, a people's ride that... At least for a little while. Yeah, and a people's ride, but not just necessarily it's the riders, it's actually the people's ride, because as I said, you know, the, the, community, the communities would come out and support people, mm-hmm. and that actually helped nurture people through safely. You know, mm, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna stop the indie pack because of one death, you might as well stop every race. Yeah, race. absolutely. Yeah. And support doesn't necessarily guarantee people get, support with support vehicles doesn't guarantee that rider's going to get to the end. Yeah, uh, they get to the end safely or alive. So. Yeah. And yeah, it could change the whole demeanor of the race. You know, in, yeah. in, in, you're talking about the mental, yeah. the mental yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. aspect of it. If you're alone, you know mm-hmm. you're alone. You've got to get it out yeah. alone. If you've got a support vehicle, you always have, yeah. no matter how strong you are, you always have the option. Yep. You know, and that's probably kills the whole purpose of the I, race. I think a really important thing, though, is also to, you can't, you've got to really reinforce the, uh, the responsibility on the individual to be aware of his or her abilities, capabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people who sign up shouldn't just sign up willy-nilly and, and then think they're going to go through 23 hours without any sleep. Yeah. That's just the people who, who lead these events, like Christoph Alger, yeah. who, he does several of these events. His body is attuned to having micro-sleeps. I, I heard on day one of the first one, yeah. Yeah. he got 400 kilometres down the road or thereabouts... Yeah. And went through a little as town. <laughs> yeah, as you do. <laughs> Found a, there was a park bench, lied down on the park bench, or it might have been actually the service station. The yep. toilet's in the service station, lied on the floor for half an hour, eyes opened up, he went bang, gone, yep. out the door. Off yep. the, and then a park bench was the next day. Yeah. That sort of, that's, yeah, that's the sort of stuff they do, thing. yeah. But, but his, his body's attuned to that because that's what he does as, as <laughs> like a professional cyclist <laughs> does with uh, their bodies can, can race at 45k you know, a day 
for three weeks, yeah. whereas average, the average person wouldn't be able to race like that <laughs> in a peloton. So, I mean, it's about being realistic about what you can and can't do. Yeah. And, and also, um, you know, uh, so I think the message has got to be reinforced because I think this genre of riding is going to get more popular than less popular. Absolutely. So these discussions like this are really important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and towards the end as well, um, a friend of ours, Mike Tomaris, came, mm. uh, came to join you. I think that was <laughs> quite uh, – I need to mention it because that was yeah. nice, a nice moment. Yeah. We need to get him to ride this race. <laughs> yeah, look, I reckon – I know he Tom, doesn't want to. But <laughs> yeah, Tomo should. Tomo should. Now, that was really nice of Tomo to come out, though. I remember he uh, – he came out you know, in two days, you know, not just the last day, but the day before. Okay. And I went from um, Mossvale, a couple of the guys from Eastern Suburbs Cycling Club in, uh, in, uh, in Sydney, they came out and met me as well in Mossvale. And Tomo arrived on the train. I remember waiting for Tomo to get off the he train. He didn't even ride his bike out. <laughs> oh, you're dying. Oh, no, he <laughs> oh, no, but he rode, he rode in from Mossvale. Right. And we, then we got to Wollongong. Um, we stopped for lunch, and then we got, and then I was going to go. I was going to go further, but Tomo, to his credit, and you know, I give him a thumbs up. He had to go and do a shift that night. Yeah. <laughs> so at three o'clock, he managed to get the train home and make it to, to go and do a shift that night. And then he turned up the next day. So he's uh, a legend, Tomo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the book is called Overlander. That was book number one. We have another book to talk about, uh, and it's not a small subject. It's the history of Australian cycling. Uh, the book is called uh, Power of the Pedal. Stay with us. It's a longer podcast today, but uh, it's, a, it's a very special one. So. I mean, how do you tackle a title like this, the history of Australia cycling? Where does it start yeah. and actually where does it end? Because it's hard to end, I guess. Well, certainly hard to win, and, and since it's come out, uh, it's already been added on thanks to people like Rowan Dennis and Amanda Spratt. And, but that's good, though. And me, I know, exactly, I know. <laughs> mm. But each time, I mean, when Rowan got his Giro, uh, uh, his Giro stage win, you know, oh. time for, I went, oh, God, there's one fact that's going to be out of date. And then he had the, obviously had the pink jersey and then... World champion in... Uh, and then world championship, the Vuelta gets two... I mean, oh, gee, no, no. And then Amanda Spratt pulls off a silver medal. And, oh, there's another... But it's, it's, it's a very important book yeah. in, in classifying and how long the cycling mm. history has been as much as uh, pretty much how long has this country has been has been existing exactly in many ways it's a portal to the development of australia as a country because the book doesn't is not just about bike racing is what we've just been talking about it's not just about indie pack or, or elite professional racing it's 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 about the bike we said the power of the pedal the power of the pedal is the the the, the power of a bicycle its imprint on the landscape of Australia um, from a social aspect, from a sporting aspect, recreational aspect, from a um, logical story. I mean, from every single layer you can think of in Australia's development, the bicycle has been there. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's, it's the, the, the history of the bicycle in Australia is as, is as rich as the history of Australia is. Were there things you learnt when you, when you were researching this because you've obviously, you know, you've been covering cycling for a long time and, and then in recent years, I guess, other areas, not just the competitive side. What did you learn from this and what surprised you, I guess, when you went, oh my God, I didn't know this about, you know, the, the push bike yeah. in Australia or, or whether it be recreational or racing or... Um, well, Mac, probably what I learned is I realised what I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> after 30 plus years of riding about cycling, you know, you, know, you can think that you know a fair bit. But then I realised how really I didn't realise how much I didn't didn't know, and um, and uh, in researching this book, where I you know which I did you know you know recognised acknowledged other uh, books or publications which have uh, crossed this subject before. While we all talk about the development of the bike from a technical point of view, the, since the safety bike basically the 
came into Australia, well, came came at all, you know, which after the penny farthing, the safety bike was basically the, the, the bicycle we have today. So the bicycle really hasn't changed as much as branding and commercialisation of, of products may lead us to believe. The bicycle is two wheels, two pedals, yeah. handlebars mm-hmm. and a saddle. You know, and brakes, and brakes, yeah, yeah. and and, and uh, electronic gearing. <laughs> and the, yeah. So that's that, that's the one thing I, which I love about the fact that the bicycle hasn't, you know, the, the the structure of the bicycle is basically what it was at the beginning, and that's I think that's a good thing, you know. So when you read the story about uh, is it Opperman that went and rode the Tour de France in 1923, part mm. of uh, a, a crew they took them five months or four months to go on a ship, and I mean those were proper adventure and yeah. proper uh, pioneers. Yeah, they, they certainly were. You know, um, uh, you know, and besides you know, Oppers, you know, you had the, the the first two Aussies, Don Kirkham, Snow Munro, yeah. the first two Aussies mm-hmm. to ride the Tour. But then you had the the whole advent of of um, of racing generally. I mean, what I found interesting, like just going back to the original of the bike, the origins of the bike, and how it was used, and then more people were using it. Then you had masses using it. Then you had the development of because there were so many people riding them. Um, you had the formation of clubs, and then there were so many clubs. And then you had to have a more structured means for people to ride uh, faster. So races developed. And um, I think what I learned out of this was how, uh, you know, for so many years Australia was dubbed as not being a tradition, not being a, a cycling country mm-hmm. per se. In the context of our contemporary thinking of everything comes from Europe, you know, and that Australia is a new cycling nation. But Australia is not a new. We, we have we've our history is as long as any other countries. It's one of the oldest sports, it's isn't it, yeah. in this country? And Australian cycling history is unique. That's yeah. the difference between. European say cycling and Australian cycling is it's unique because we have these such the diversity I use that word about that so many times but the diversity of how the bike was used and why um, from the history of the overlander riders to recreational cyclists to and then you get um, you know people rode uh, bikes instead of riding camels or horses you know um, it was an easier means, a faster means. So mail delivery started, you know, with bicycles or people, farmers or people, gold miners rode them out to the gold mines um, as a form of transport for that. And yeah. That. Just on, 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 I guess, the side of people using the push bike as a form of transport and commuting, you're Sydney, you live in Sydney, mm. obviously we're here in Melbourne and... You know, as as a Melbourneian, I guess, and probably Victorian, I go, gee, I'm I'm reasonably proud of what our government has done, and I guess a big part of, you know, with bike lanes, etc., and uh, bicycle network, I think have, have, should be thanked a fair bit for that, as as a lobby group. What do you make of what's going on in Sydney and New South Wales? I think when we go up there, some or when I go up there, sometimes for work, the last time I noticed a bike lane had been ripped up in the CBD. In, in Sydney. Mm. And I'm not trying to make this a controversial topic, but no, come on. we can't help it. It is, isn't it? <laughs> but but what do you make of it? Because you're obviously, you've become more passionate, I guess, as a as a person who just rides a bike. I think mm. there's a fair thing to say yeah. with the Overlander experience, apart yeah. from covering the, the, the um, uh, professional side yeah. of the sport. So what's your thoughts on all of that? And yeah. what needs to happen, do you think, to win our governments over more? Yeah, that's... Um Gee, it's a hard question, Macca, because <laughs> it's it's one we're constantly wrestling with. Yeah. And because uh, when you when you hear of what happens out in the road and the, and the and the you know the antagonism between car drivers and cyclists, and yep. it goes both ways. So 
you know, it's we are talking about road sharing, and there's both parties are at fault in, in areas. But what what I'd love to see more of is, um, you know, say government investment, whether it's federal, or state government investment into um, not just uh, advertising, you know, that you know, uh, you know, cyclists, this is the law, and this is you know the meter matters or something like that, and not discrediting the meter matter mm. campaign, but I'd like to see more educational. Um, uh, advertisements or, or campaigns led by government, which alert, help educate, not harangue and you know, Bible. Back, sorry, I didn't mean that. But, um, <laughs> harangue and just uh, you know, try to force uh, messages down people's throats. But they want to try and educate so people understand both drivers and cars of what the dangers really are. It may take some confrontational type of advertising too, a bit like we've seen with smoking and drinking. You know, some of those ads, you know, are quite. Pretty confrontational. Yeah, but it, it, people need to. But if I'm the advocate of this, they tried it in Switzerland. It didn't work um, because some of the adverts they had were very shocking on how cyclists actually behaved on the road, mm-hmm. uh, and then they were pulled out because they were too strong. You know, they yeah. were not. They were not effect- effective. We've, we've just yeah. we've got to follow the Scandinavian and Dutch and yeah. Belgian models, don't we? Absolutely. Whatever that model mm-hmm. is, and I know it's a history thing, but I've, I've seen stuff on. On Holland, and mm. I, there's a Twitter handle I follow, which I think is courtesy of Stephen Hodge, actually, who who is pro all mm. that sort of stuff about the bike these days. And they showed a picture. It's, it's a classic picture of Amsterdam, right, 30 years ago, the street, and then a picture mm. current time. 30 years ago was full of cars. Mm-hmm. Now it's full of bikes. And you would have thought 30 years ago it would have been more so full of bikes. Yep. But it wasn't. So Amsterdam wasn't always a cycling city, no. and there was actually a, 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 there was a whole series of not series, I shouldn't say a series. There was, there was so many deaths of at the time as well of right. cyclists on the road if, who were the minority because there was, were so many cars. It's actually an issue which um, I've, I've looked at in Power of the Pedal because it's part of that that debate and discussion, and um, it's something which actually Stephen Hodge, uh, you know, he he helped me get a better understanding. On that issue, and so did Phil Latz. Um, I think most people in cycling know, and, uh, and that was an area which I realised I didn't have my head around yeah. enough. And um, so I figured I've got to try and I've had to learn a lot of this. And um, so that she said, yeah, back in, everyone thinks of Holland being this mecca for riding bikes, and they they went through tragedy and trauma and, and tough and, times. And everything. So yeah. you know what it may take may take thirty years before it may not be. A, do you know what I, I reckon time, you know. can, can help is when people discover that you can actually have an electric bike. So people today take their cars instead of their bike because it's too hard to cycle when they go to work mm. and so on. Yeah. If they can arrive at work without sweating, yes. without having to take a shower, they might just think twice. I saw and, you yeah. know, a motorist, that's a, good yeah. a cyclist is also a motorist. You know, yeah, yeah that's time. right. Yeah. So it doesn't differ. It's, it's yeah. just about making more accessible for everyone to commute, yeah. Yeah. I think. He was on the electric scooter. I spotted him. I caught him. I was riding <laughs> in. Scooter. I was, you know, I was burning it up, sweating it up. He was on the electric scooter, Smoking cruising home <laughs> with the sunnies on. He, you look so French, by the way. You could not have looked any more French. You know what? And I'm smoking because I think I'm right. <laughs> what, what about the electric, uh, electric skateboard? I saw that because some guy went uphill the past the other day, and I thought, how do you? Yeah, one leg that's crazy. Your book, uh, how long has it been taking you to, to write this? Because, it's, uh, like I say, it's, it's not 
as big as a Bible, mm. uh, <laughs> but, but it's a cycling Bible, basically. Yeah, look, it, it actually started in 2014. To be honest, I was a bit late on it coming out. But that, that's why there's a chapter on the Overlanders in there, which is where the, my Overlander book stemmed from. So it was kind of funny that the Overlander came out yep. before Power of the Pedal. So it's, it's taken yeah, a good f- four years, um, stop and start, because of other things getting, you know, coming in my life. But as you said, you know, it's, it's very hard to finish. You put to, to press, well, yeah. for the publishers to press the printer's button. Yeah, when do you... When do you... Excuse me. Sorry. Thank you. Bush. <laughs> uh, Thanks for turning it away, Matt. It was coming. Uh, when do you say, I'm done? This is, is this the harder, the harder um, part to go, yeah. you know what, book is done. No, it's the publisher says that. Okay. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> Brady, you're, you're done. Because <laughs> I, I was even going, well, oh, can we just get this in? Can we get, I think the, the, yeah. la, the latest detail we got, because it went, end of April it went to the publishers. So um, fortunately no Australians won, won a major classic. No, no, <laughs> I know we would have got that in. No, we would have got that in. Um, so we, we managed to get like two down under in and the, the national championships and maybe a couple of other races after that. And, and it's a, as you said, it's a pretty broad brush on a whole gamut of the sport. So there's, there's areas in there where I'm sure readers, you know, will say, gee, I'd love to read more on that or that. But it's a whole subject of not just racing but the whole impact of the bicycle. It's... Uh, but he, make, he also massive. makes the book palatable. It's not a 700 or 800 pages. You know, yeah. you, you yeah. know you're going to finish that book. And I have included websites where people, like particularly with the race results, I thought, mm-hmm. gee, we can't fit every race result in. So, you know, with the Tour de France, you know, if you want to follow um, more Australian results, go to the Tour de France website. So I've got one last question about the, mm-hmm. the world of uh, professional cycling in Australia. Mm-hmm. Do you think Australia got the respect it deserves with someone like... Phil Anderson, is it the catalyst of getting Australia on the world planet of cycling? Is that when it all started I think in, in terms of recognition internationally? Modern day cycling, I think, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I say that, for, uh, one, for myself, because that was a turning point for me or the thing that, that lit up my interest in the sport as a journalist and I was just fascinated by, you know, the yellow jersey and, and the Tour de France. Um, but I think it is for from a contemporary understanding of, if you look at the history of Australian cycling, it definitely is. And I think, uh, you know, if, if the, I, I don't think that should ever be underestimated, what Phil achieved uh, at that time in the early 80s. Um, you know, it's interesting, the, the Tour de France, they're going to be organising next year's the uh, 100 years of the Mayo Jean, yeah, the yeah. and they're doing a, an exhibition in which uh, Phil's agreed to contribute his uh, first yellow jersey to they're going to have an exhibition of all the yellow jerseys up there which will be oh, fascinating cool. wow. to see i'm looking forward to that but, absolutely but his so his imprint you know on the sport is is absolutely massive and and he's still contributing his imprint still being um put in place today because you know you see what phil's doing with training camps tours he, he loves the bike as much now as he ever did and that's what yeah that's one thing i think is really fascinating and great about the sport you know mac you know you riding and yeah. you know the fact you can still after a professional career can still go back to what intrinsically brings us all together yeah, about the bike I is that essence of just love riding a bike. You do. You reignite, I think, that, that love and passion mm. for it. I thought I'd barely ride a bike again after I'd finished racing because the last thing you want to do is see the bike. But you're dead right. Yeah. And now I love it just as much. And I love it a bit more because I don't have to ride fast if I don't want to. Yeah, you can stop. <laughs> you know can ride probably, at any yeah. speed. It's yeah. quite interesting because it's probably not true for every sport, like tennis or yeah. football. No, I'm true. not sure exactly. people kick a ball after no. professional kind well, of Well, their knees are buggered and they've, <laughs> they've had too many ACLs done <laughs> and <laughs> that's um, why. You know, uh, I guess golfers, 
yeah, can, maybe. Maybe, maybe car drivers can because they can enjoy and appreciate a nice car or something. Yeah. You know, yeah, footballers can't. I don't know about cricket, cricketers, but yeah, it's, it's but professional cyclists can um, and do and do and do. It's yeah, a social sport. It's yeah. a really social sport. I yeah. think that that helps a lot too, doesn't yeah. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so two great books: The Overlander and Empower to the Pedal. Uh, I guess we can find that in any good and less good back sh- uh, bookshop. They are everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> cer- certainly can. And uh, you know, it's a it's a great. Uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm very lucky. I've had been able to have the education for myself after all these years <laughs> to catch up. Uh, the any other business because that's what we do also in this podcast. Uh, and glad you're here, actually, Rupert. Uh, Wollongong will be on the map of the uh, world cycling in 2022. Yeah, because uh, you know, IndyPac went through Wollongong. Yeah, look, that's um, that was massive, great news. And a surprise for pretty much everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they kept it under wraps, didn't they? Yeah, Big yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. did well. It was it was um you know, chapeau to everybody who managed to get them there and, and also to keep it uh keep the lid on it because um we all know cycling, usually these things come out and uh I think, speaking from someone from Sydney or from New South Wales, you know, we, we've, since the days of the Commonwealth Bank Cycling Classic and take away the Sydney Olympics, you know, we've, we haven't had anything like that mm-hmm. in, in cycling, not just from an elite level, but the impetus that this is going to bring cycling in general uh, to, well, obviously to Wollongong, the, you know, the southern highlands area, but to the state. Um, it could be a real kickstart yeah, going back to yeah, what yeah. we're talking about. For, for cyclists in yeah. general. Because this is going back, we're talking, about, we're talking yeah. about, this is where maybe what the government, hopefully, besides just sort of, you know, saying, oh, great, we're going to have, this is part of our list of having 10 world championships in 10 years. This is with the New South Wales government. Hopefully they can say, hey, this is a great platform to start educating, bringing yeah. in about the healthy aspect of cycling. But anyway, it's going to be great to have, since the Sydney Olympics, New South Wales um, will not have had such a field of, of cycling Elite cycling uh, of this level. Obviously, had the worlds in Geelong, but yeah. you know. But what about the area, the Illawarra? For people that don't know the area, what can we expect? And we spoke to a couple of locals um, along mm. the way. But the area itself's got pretty much everything you want from an Australian cycling perspective. It, it's it certainly has. I mean, you've got the beaches, you've got hills around, you've got uh, I said the southern the southern highlands is some of the most beautiful terrain you can go to for. For cycling, the fact that it's Wollongong is one hour south by train. You know, I know from my doorstep, I, I'm across from Edgecliff Station. I could walk across the road, get in the train, and an hour later I can be down there. You know, so it's 90k from Sydney. Sydney. Could they start on the Opera House and yeah. then do a circuit around Wollongong well, right down on that way? I think they should because, and then I'm not taking this trying to say Sydney's taking it away from Wollongong, but it worked with Geelong. Yeah. Where they started here in Melbourne. Totally, you know, start the first, you know, ride down to, you know, as they did ride down to Geelong, ride from the Opera House down to Wollongong. These, these, this peloton can do that. That's not a problem. I've got a great idea too. Advertise on the cellar. Yeah, advertise <laughs> on the Opera House. That'd be awesome, Ooh. wouldn't it? <laughs> wow, you S- could sell advertising <laughs> space. Or the SBS uh, logo, <laughs> UCI, and all that. Oh, that's a really cheap joke. Sorry, uh, anyway, <laughs> it's probably um, outdated as well. Yeah, so we can still, still, still a good one though. Yeah. <laughs> still it's, still, it's still got a lifetime. Yeah, no, but it's exciting. It's yeah. exciting it's, for Australia. It's exciting for New South Wales. Yeah. It's exciting for everyone. And you think of people like uh, you know, we don't know what the course is going to be. If say if they did go from Sydney down to that area, I think you've obviously. I think what this year's Worlds uh, at Innsbruck showed too, you know, we had that nice hill 
as a little nice add-on. Is, nice is a little word. And, and it shows, <laughs> I think, the UCI obviously being open-minded to uh, being um, creative with the route. Now, yeah, not, not being saying, so traditional. It's got to be 18 times as one circuit. It's, they're, try, they're allowing regions that take in uh, worlds to showcase not just one town but the area. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the UCI would be crazy not to uh, approve an opportunity to ha- have the Opera House the showcase that yeah. terrain down through the National Park to Wollongong, and then it's Wollongong's party, you know, and you've got some great hills there. Um, uh, I don't know what the last hill before the finish would be because one would assume it's got to finish in Wollongong on the beach. But you could have, I don't know, people talk about would, they get, would you race up Macquarie Pass or would you cut, race up Bulleye Pass? I mean, they're still long. Anyway, I'm assuming they've got all that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah. going to be the next exciting part, what the route will be. <laughs> yes. I'm sure we'll debate this. Yes, in totally. Full credit to everybody. Absolutely. A full, full thumbs up and a full ride on for, for everyone. Last uh, subject I'd like us to talk about is Paris Tour. Uh, not so much on the, on the racing and uh, the winners and the losers of that race. Uh, two points to take away from this. First of one is gravel. Gravel, gravel is becoming the world of this year. Uh, <laughs> riders are, are, are complaining about gravels. Uh, what do you guys make of it? I think it's great. I love it. I think, and I think the bike industry are loving it because they're rolling out more gravel bikes and cross bikes. I bought, I bought one. And even I would <laughs> yeah, buy one. That's what I got. But the competitive cyclists, yeah. I, I think some of them liked it, some of them didn't. Um, I think it's a bit of a storm in a teacup, to they, be honest. They could, um, mm. Some of them say it's dangerous. Yeah. Is it really dangerous? Wow. Well, compared to Paris-Roubaix, exactly. it's, it's, a, it's a nice board velodrome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's – I agree with, with Macker. I think it's kind of an issue which – um, we talk about knee-jerk reactions, you know, yep. because what started as something like you talk about, I guess Strata Bianchi at the beginning of the year, you know, it sort of it's etched its place as, as that classic, you know, with the white roads and because of, mm. because of that. And everyone loved that because everyone thought this is great, it's this classic which has its own identity. And then obviously we've seen more races include a bit more gravel, a bit more gravel and sound like, you know, some riders are thinking, hey, hold, this is a bit too much now. But it's the same debate you'd have with cobblestones in the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. But you know what? The cobblestones in the Tour de France are going to be there. They're magical. magical. They're not going to get rid of cobblestones <laughs> in, in the Tour de France. It's like saying people don't like mountains. They're going to have mountains in a Tour. It's horses for courses. And yeah. I think the, the, uh, the, the dangers of crashing on gravel, sure, you can crash on gravel, but you can crash anywhere. You can crash on roads. and look at these traffic islands they keep crashing into. Yeah. Yes. So I'd rather... The issue be to address the concerns. You know, I reckon the peloton should put its push behind getting the UCI and race organisers to do much better job at helping races have safer, correct? Uh, you know, less uh, road traffic and things. Some of those mm. crashes you still hear see are absolutely horrendous and just verging on criminal. I'd say yeah. some mm. of those work on that and that the gravel. The gravel's the gravel. That's, I think yeah. they're putting the energy in the wrong place right now. Yeah, absolutely. And the last uh, subject, Chavanel retired on that race. Uh, pretty, I mean, a great career uh, and, and a great man leaving the, the, prof- the, the professional peloton. Totally, totally. Mm. He'll, he'll, be, he'll be remembered and celebrated throughout, more so France and the Tour de France, you I know, think. In France, people are saying, yeah, great. He could have done a bit better. Like he, he sort of, at some point in his career, coffee this time, could he have been it's the a leader classic, he should have been? Uh, I think it's that classic comment. You know what? It's like, you would have heard this, route, but it's like, uh, and I'm bringing poor old Matt Gossie into this, but people say, oh, gee, Gossie could have done more in his career. I'm like, 
He won Milan San Remo. He won stages of Grand Tours. What do yeah. you want? He yeah. was as good as he, you know, because he may be retired slightly younger than, you know, some riders are retiring yeah. these days and they seem to be retiring older. But I think it's that classic thing. Mm. We want more out of them. I mean, yeah. have, when was the last time you rode 100 days in a professional peloton, yeah. peeps? I mean, yeah. I, I ride an electric scooter to work. So. Oh, no, that's hard. That's pretty <laughs> tough. That. You've got to dodge all the commuters. Yeah, and I, and I know a lot of that's said about uh, automotion, but I think you've got to be careful what you wish for because, you know, you don't want to be pushing people too far beyond what they... Sh- you wouldn't. I don't think riders should have too much pressure to go beyond what they feel they can do. There's yeah. no set template to say retirement age is this or that. Uh, and I think that uh, what people... It's, too hard a sport uh, as it or it's, it's it's hard enough sport as it is as Macca knows without having a, a rider having to feel that they underachieved when the time comes when they their body and their mind says that's enough they know how much they've put into it they know how much they've got in them to put into it if we start pushing them too far then it leads you, down, you go down a rabbit hole of potential other issues you know mm. which can you know you don't want riders you know, there's a whole lot of other issues that people can go to if they feel they're pressured to, mm, to go beyond. So I think when someone knows, they know. And, and it's actually, um, you know, Chavanel's gone so far already. So He's in his 40s, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. He's, he's got the moist I'm not, I'm not saying he could it. have gone longer. I think uh, he could have gone better. People yeah. are and, and you know what, to see someone better. go no. beyond. I remember Sean Kelly, you know, I thought he should have, I think he went one, two, one year or two years too long, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, I just think, you, you know, you don't want to see someone riding when they shouldn't be there. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you for coming, uh, Rupert. It was a real pleasure to have you in, uh, in the podcast. No, thanks very much. It's been a, a great thrill. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks to <laughs> both of you. Oh, thank you, Mike, as well. No worries. <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> Cheers. This was the Zwift Cycling Central podcast. Uh, remember that you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to our podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash central, and schedule a ride with our friends at Zwift. Until the next podcast, it's bye for now. Zwift is an indoor cycling platform where you can connect with a global community of cyclists at any time. You can chat with people all over the world, share in group rides, get encouragement from total strangers ride on, who quickly become your new riding buddies and train harder and faster with competition on a global scale. Check out Zwift for yourself at Zwift.com today.